Hello, and welcome to Return to Regalia, an Underland Chronicles reread podcast. I'm Una. And I'm John. John, welcome back to the pod. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. Lots happened since the last time I was here. Yeah, yeah. We're really getting into it, these chapters. Um, so let's just get right into chapter 10. Where we last left Gregor, he'd just been shown his dad's keychain by Vicus. He asks Vicus where he got it, and Vicus says that an overlander who looked a lot like Gregor came to Regalia some years back. Again, Gregor recalls the exact number of days since his father disappeared. Gregor is excited at first, but then Vicus goes on to explain how Gregor's dad tried to escape Regalia just like Gregor did, and the rats got to him. Gregor assumes this means his dad died, but Vicus says he's actually alive and being kept prisoner by the rats. They have spies that confirm this. So actually, in earlier episodes, when we talked about how Vicus didn't want to give Gregor false hope by telling him that his dad might still be alive, he actually was just straight up lying by omission. I remember us talking about that because like I we like that was something we were talking about, his manipulation, and if he knew that Gregor's dad was alive on if he was just assuming he was dead, and I was maybe giving him the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, he's just trying to exploit Gregor because he didn't want to... Like that one scene where he says, ah yes, the laundry shoots. Exactly. He he knew. He knew that this was somebody important to Gregor, and he just chose not to disclose that information to him. Yeah, exactly. I was in the same spot. I couldn't quite remember if Vicus knew for sure if Gregor's dad was alive. And I also wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt of like, oh, Vicus is just trying to not get Gregor's hopes up and not give him false hope. But he actually does know for sure that Gregor's dad is alive because of the spies. So if he had wanted to, he could have said right when he first met Gregor, hey, are you missing your dad? Because he's alive. He's with the rats. We know where he is. So he really is just straight up lying. It's always interesting to me how in a lot of stories, like a lot of them, there's always like this older mentor figure to the main character who's often like a child or a teenager or even just younger by a significant margin. And like they're always depicted as like being very warm and like well-meaning and very kind-hearted. They're like a, a gentle guide into this new world for the main character. And then there's often a little bit of like sinister or just manipulative undertones to them. Like It's a very common trope. You've got Dumbledore and Harry Potter, you've got Professor X and the X-Men, there's always these, like, never really dealt into moments where you're like, you could have been more forthcoming, and yet you, like, decisively chose not to. Exactly. Chiron in Percy Jackson Jackson. is another one who is this wise old man, he's seen some shit, he thinks that he knows what's best, and a lot of the time it ends up that he doesn't give Percy the whole story about things until it's absolutely relevant. Chiron is not as bad as Vicus. Vicus is like really withholding information on purpose, but Chiron is also one of those like mysterious mentor figures. He also refuses to let Percy see the prophecy until book five. That's right. That is... A common thread. Say what you will about Vicus, at least he shows all the prophecies to Gregor, even when Gregor doesn't want to know them. Yeah, well, I think Vicus, he does wait until book five to show Gregor the final prophecy that tells Gregor that he's gonna die, which is wild, because at this point, Vicus is looking at Gregor and thinking, 
he could be the warrior, or Vicus is pretty convinced he is the warrior from the prophecies. So as long as he's thinking that, he's also looking at Gregor and being like, this kid's gonna die. <laughs> but he's not going to disclose that information just yet. Of course not. No. Of course not. Anyway, Vicus says that he thinks the rats are keeping Gregor's dad alive because he's a scientist, and he might be making weapons for the rats. Gregor says he wouldn't do that, but Vicus says, It is hard to imagine what any of us would do in the caves of the rats. To keep sanity it must be a struggle. To keep honor a Herculean feat. Which later we, when we find Gregor's dad, he is in really rough shape. So Vicus is being upfront about that in a lot of ways. He's like, this doesn't look good. Even though your dad's alive, it might not be great. I also wanted to note about this part. He says Herculean. And I always forget the Underlanders know a lot of the same mythology and literature that we do. 1600s, not that long ago compared to ancient Greece. Right, like they would have had the same exact references. So I imagine that the Regalians, after they cut themselves off from the Overland, just kept on telling Greek myths and Mm. Shakespeare plays. There are a lot of Underlanders named after Shakespeare characters, and then a lot of the bats are named after Greek mythology figures. And that's another question that I have is like, the bats wouldn't have spoken English before, they wouldn't have spoken any human language before Sandwich arrived. The bats probably have their own names in their own language that's too high pitched for humans to hear. And I'm wondering if the Greek mythology names that they have are just like a second name that they go by when they're speaking with humans, because the humans can't hear or pronounce their real names. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting that maybe the bats just heard the Greek myths from the humans and what they just went, that's cool, I'm going to use that name. (laughs) Anyway, we learn from Luxa that the rats fight well in close range, but don't have a way to attack from a distance. Gregor notes that Luxa isn't mad at him anymore and is just staring at him. So I think at this point she's caught on by now that Vicus thinks Gregor is the warrior. Mm-hmm. I also like how, like, given that she's not mad at him, I feel like if she... Well, now we get later on how she doesn't necessarily believe he's the warrior. I feel like maybe she does. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll get more into Luke's, like, beliefs and, like, her feelings towards Gregor later. But I, I feel like she would have been more mad if, like, she was, like, also now thinking, oh, Vicus is, like, believing that this kid is going to save us when I know he's not anything special. Right. I think she believes that the prophecies are very powerful. Yes. And she also trusts Vicus's interpretations of the prophecies mm-hmm. to some extent. But I think that Luxa has a lot of doubts because she doesn't think very highly of Gregor right, right now. Apparently, Solabet thinks the rats want Gregor's dad to make them a thumb so they can use tools. When I was a kid, I always thought this was the funniest, silliest thing. And it's really interesting that Solabet thinks in terms of, like, bioengineering a thumb. Because later she's interested in, like, biochemical weapons and the plague. So it's interesting that she's thinking in terms of what do the rats want and with science, what could they like mutate themselves to have. I also, I like all of this discussion that Gwega has about his dad with the Underlanders because it's really like throwing his perception of his father into like a bit of a tizzy. Like he never really doubts his dad throughout all of this, but 
he has a he, how long has it been since his father died several years or since he presumes his father was between left. two and three years two and three years he's got a bit of an idealized version of his father at this point absolutely he like refuses to believe this like it's not like an unfounded belief but he's just he's not even considering the option even though like the alternative that he's hearing from is that like well if he didn't cooperate then they might have killed him right so he's having to combat those two options in his head and yet like also having them together like my father's alive but there's no, also no way he would have helped the vets yeah because gregor gets kind of upset during this scene where they're talking about maybe gregor's dad is helping the rats mm -hmm. but then either vicus or luxa tells gregor you should be thankful that he has something that the rats want because that's the only reason that they're keeping him alive Vicus has a really killer line here, too. He says, The rats are masters of destruction, but creation evades them. That's very good. I really like that. Maybe I'll come back to that at some point, because I have a lot of thoughts about how the humans are perceived in the Underland by the other creatures, and we get into it a lot in later books. I do feel like the humans in the Underland like are a very good reflection of the humans in the Overland, with a lot of technology that they don't utilized to the fullest or misuse. Right, right. And Vicus is framing the humans here as, oh, we can create and destroy, aren't we so great? But then the perspective of the other underland creatures are that the humans are just mass murderers. Yeah, the destroyers. Yeah. So Gregor asks if Luxa met his dad, and she says she was too young to have met him then, because Luxa also would have been like eight the same age Gregor was when his dad disappeared. Vicus says, Luxa was still concerned with her dolls then, and Gregor tries to imagine Luxa with a doll and can't. Yeah. I think that's so funny. Because if you think about it, yeah, Luxa is growing up in this very violent society where there's always this threat of war, but she's also very sheltered in that she's the princess. And before her parents died, I'm sure she had a very like normal, happy life just being raised in the palace. She probably got whatever she wanted. Including dolls. Yeah, she probably had a bunch of them. Luxa says her parents did meet Gregor's dad, and Gregor realizes they must have died sometime in the past couple years. The narration says, Gregor wondered about how the rats had killed them, but he knew he'd never ask. So basically, Gregor knows what it's like to be asked uncomfortable questions all the time, and we never really do learn exactly what happened to Luke's parents. Mm -hmm. We never get the full story. And I think that's really interesting in that Gregor is, first of all, he knows that it's rude to ask and it would be uncomfortable and it would make Luke so sad. But on another level, he's also like, I don't need to know that. That information of how exactly her parents died isn't relevant here. I thought that was a really good little line about Gregor's emotional maturity, that he can hold on to his curiosity enough to not ask Luxa about her parents, because he's been through the same thing of people always asking about his dad and him having to make up lies about what happened and stuff like that. Gregor asks why the rats hate the humans, and especially overlanders, so much. And Vicus and Luxa agree that Gregor has to, quote, know what he faces. Gregor follows Vicus and Luxa to the prophecy room. 
It has a polished wooden door, and Gregor realizes it's the first wooden thing he's seen in the Underland. So I'm wondering if they brought this door from the Overland when they first came down, and it's just survived all of these years. Well, because they do have trees in the Underland. They're just very rare. Yeah, and we do learn that there was a garden where apple trees grew, Mm. but... We don't learn if those were ever used for wood. They were just there for the apples. I think I always thought that Sandwich brought it from the Overland because he wanted to have privacy while he was chipping away at the walls in there. So it's kind of this relic of the Overland and a symbol of Sandwich and where he came from. Vicus opens the door with a key and the three of them enter with a torch. The room is totally empty, but all of the walls and floor and ceiling have words carved into the stone. This is such a great location that we keep coming back to in the books. It's an awesome visual. It's a great visual. It's scary to think about. Like, entering a room and every single surface has words carved into the stone and it's completely empty. It's like a jail cell. That someone locked themselves in there and just wrote on the walls. Or not even rip. Sandwich didn't even write. He was chipping away at the stone, which is wild. It's in the ceiling, too. Right? Yeah. yeah. Really used every inch of space he had. I'm trying to imagine Sandwich asking the other regalians when they first come down to the Underland. Like, yeah, we're going to build this palace, but I'm going to need a special room where I can lock myself in and carve in the walls. Yeah, Bartholomew of Sandwich fascinates me as a character. Like, what a strange, legendary figure for this nation. Like, no wonder it's in shambles, honestly. No wonder they have, like, a lack of direction if this is what they're getting all of their, like, policy and insight from. Right. This is the center of their culture that they've crafted. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, that we don't ever hear about another, like, religion from the Underlanders. We literally just hear about Sandwich and his prophecies. Like, they're never talking about God or anything else. Even another, like, figure from Regalia or from the Underland who's, like, a rival right. or, like, figurehead for them to follow. Like, it's only him. It's just him. And presumably there have been other leaders and politicians in the last 400 years, but we don't hear about them. We basically just hear about how great Sandwich is. But Gregor throughout this chapter keeps calling Sandwich crazy. Yeah. And I think when I when I first read these books, I was more willing to believe in the prophecies just because I was also coming at this from like a Percy Jackson perspective right. where the prophecies are like objectively magic and they come true because the prophecies come from the gods. But in this, you have to take a step back and think this really was just some guy who wrote these. And the Brigalians all think that he had some kind of power, but there's no proof of that. And Gregor is pointing that out to the reader. And when I read that as a kid, I was like, Gregor, you have to respect the prophecies more, man. They're, they're magic. You have to believe in them. But now rereading it, I'm like, you know what, Gregor, you were right all along. Sandwich mm-hmm. is mad. And it's 
again, I love the prophecies throughout the entire series. I love how they kind of do all get fulfilled. Mm -hmm. But, like, the Regalians make them come true because they want them to come true. Exactly. They have to do a lot of linguistic gymnastics and kind of, like, poetic interpretations of the prophecies to make them align with the actual events that unfold. Yeah, I can't wait to get to the last book yeah. when Rip, Rip, Red. Rip Red kind of cracks the whole yes. thing open. It's not it's not fate, it's willpower. Yeah, that scene is so powerful. Yeah. So Vicus explains these are the prophecies of Bartholomew of Sandwich, and after the first Regalians sealed themselves off from the Overland, he devoted the rest of his life to recording them because apparently he saw visions of the future. Gregor goes off on this brief inner monologue about his grandma because she loves a book of prophecies by, quote, a guy named Nostra something, mm -hmm. which he means Nostradamus. And I actually looked him up for this because I had only ever heard of Nostradamus in kind of like a joking way, like everyone references him, but I didn't actually know anything about him. Mm -hmm. So I looked him up. According to Wikipedia, he was a French astrologer apothecary, physician, and reputed seer. He published a book called The Prophecies in 1555 that contained a bunch of poems that were supposed to predict the future. One fun fact that I had never heard before was that his prophecies are actually written combining French, Greek, Latin, and Occitan, a romance language spoken in southern France and Monaco, among other places. Hmm. So they're like multilingual prophecies, which I think is really cool. And that is, Sandwich is essentially a Nostradamus figure. Like, yeah. he really is, because Nostradamus had a lot of prophecies that are like intentionally vague or prone to multiple interpretations. That's like, yeah, they can, from a certain point of view, they can be considered true or they yeah. have been, they had come true. But it's, it's, it's up to whoever's interpreting it and they can have it be whatever they want, really. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what parallels there are between Sandwich and Nostradamus because I think Gregor brings up Nostradamus very aptly that there are a lot of similarities of like Nostradamus's prophecies have been interpreted to predict all of these things but you really have to interpret them poetically and they're intentionally vague and they're like riddles and they're supposedly like anagrams and shit too. I didn't get too deep into the rabbit hole of Nostradamus but one thing I do remember reading is that some people think that his prophecies are purposefully vague so that he wouldn't get prosecuted for heresy, mm -hmm. which is really interesting to me. And Sandwich didn't have to do that. He, those, this was his own nation that he had just founded. He could right. be, he could say whatever he wanted. They accepted. it. Literally, he made a whole society sealed off from everyone else so that he could just say whatever he wanted. I'm really into the idea of Sandwich just being a cult leader, this breed. Based, I, I mean, that... He essentially is. He's honestly. essentially a cult leader, and he has created his own little compound of regalia. Yeah. It never really dies out. Right. It, it keeps going after his demise. Yeah, yeah. They just build him up to be this legendary figure. Now I'm thinking of like parallels, like Scientology, where it's like maybe there have been like other rivals who like have like questioned his prophecies, and they're just like silenced yeah i and bet because like 400 years there's gotta be some doubters i mean even we see Ripred, like he's like 
he doesn't believe the prophecies. He's just smart enough to keep his mouth shut about it most of the time right. so he doesn't get persecuted for it. But there's got to be some humans in Regalia that are like, man, this is stupid. Yeah, I can't imagine that every single underland human is on board with sandwich right even there's not many of them but like still like over the centuries there there have been some yeah that's really interesting to think about i hadn't considered the fact that there would be people in regalia potentially against sandwich that is really interesting like what would happen to those people would they just be socially ostracized or are they like silenced or exiled which would likely lead to death as all would know yeah a lot of things could happen that's really interesting to think about um one more fun fact about nostradamus apparently he was known for treating the bubonic plague as an apothecary mm -hmm. which i think is so interesting because the plague is a huge part of this series later because yep. of the warm bloods exactly and also just the fact that like sandwich with his stonemason thing nostradamus had a day job in addition to the prophecies gig <laughs> you gotta have a day job anyway back to gregor the narration says gregor hadn't ruled out prophecies entirely but he was skeptical about anything sandwich came up with which is very smart just that he's not immediately buying everything that the underlanders are telling him and he's really putting a lot of doubt in sandwich He's he's got an open mind to it, but he's it's not wide open. Exactly. Luxa says Sandwich foretold her parents' death. I totally forgot about this part that apparently there's a prophecy about Luxa's parents. I would give anything to hear that prophecy. Right, because we never do. And like, doesn't Vicus say like it's like this? There was no ambiguity in that one. Yeah, I bet there was. Yeah, I bet there was before the fact, and then after the fact, they're ignoring any ambiguity. Yeah, he's like, it was clear as water. Right. Like, was it, was it Vicus? Yeah, and that also is just like, that must be a way of her to cope if she's like, yeah, my parents died, but their deaths were foretold and it was supposed to happen and but inevitable and... It's, it's belief in the higher power, essentially. Like, it takes away any, like, guilt or blame you can think about. The hood's still there, but, like, that's why it's easier for her to accept it now. Yeah, she like can if, attribute if, their deaths to this thing that's beyond her. That's the hard thing about prophecies. It's, like, it's so hard to disprove them. Because, I mean, <laughs> that's what it is. Like, you have to either say, okay, this thing that you're saying happened didn't line up, but they already have confirmation bias that it did. And then if it's like, well, this hasn't, this like doesn't apply to anything, like, well, it hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, I wonder how frequent, like, we get Gregor coming here, and then we get like five prophecies, bam, 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 in a row that all come true. It's like, how long have you waited for any of them? They can't be that, like, they gotta be kind of few and far between. There's a lot of them, but. Right, but there's only this one room, and like, I yeah. guess there's one random one written in the nursery or right. something. So it's like, I think you're looking for the prophecies to happen. Yeah, right it is pretty wild that Gregor is supposed to be like the big one. I think there are only, I, I'm not sure. I can't remember if the Curse of the Warmbloods prophecy specifically calls for the warrior, because I know that in Marks of Secret, that's the nursery rhyme prophecy, mm -hmm. and it doesn't specifically mention the warrior. So I think it's just four that are actually about Gregor. Right, the four big ones. Yeah. And then, like, because, like, the, he's in the prophecy of Bane, right? Yes. Yes. And then the Code of Claw is the Code of Claw. Yeah, the big one. But yeah, so, like, how long have they been waiting for these specific prophecies to be completed? There's also just, there had to have been other points in time where they were like, this person's the warrior. And then it, like, doesn't turn out. 
I forget, do they ever elaborate, like, how Gregor's father is taken by- Oh, because that's right, they say he tried to escape the same way Gregor did. I bet when he came down, they might have thought that Gregor's dad was the warrior. Oh, that's interesting. Honestly, I- because, like, it's like, there's nothing, like, specific, it's just he's an overlander, that's all that calls for. And it's like Gregor says, like, he's not a warrior, he's, he's 11 years old. Gregor's father, at least, was an adult. He knew about technology. Uh, but then he just escapes, and still like, oh, well, I guess it couldn't have been him. I'm really interested in taking the prophecies that appear in these books and seeing what else we could apply them to. Like, these prophecies could be applied to, like, alternate universes or alternate versions of events. I know at some point someone was trying to make the argument that Ares is actually the warrior in the prophecies. We'll have to come back to that, I think. I bet they thought Fred was also the warrior. All right. I, I think every time an overlander falls into Vigalia, they have they think maybe it's him. Vicus is so trigger happy when it comes to the prophecies. He's probably like, Fred Clark, you're the warrior. Like he's like he's all in on Gregor. Gregor hasn't done a ton to like give him any real inkling of that. Right, right. And we'll get into Vicus's reasoning a little bit next chapter. So after hearing about Luke's parents, Gregor decides that whatever he thinks about the prophecies, he should try to talk about them with respect, because they clearly mean a lot to the Regalians. Vicus says there's one prophecy in particular that was, quote, the most sacred and maddening of Sandwich's visions, because he couldn't see how it ended. It's called the Prophecy of Grey. And I think I'm actually just gonna read the whole prophecy, if you don't mind. Beware, Underlanders, time hangs by a thread. The hunters are hunted, white water runs red. The gnars will strike to extinguish the rest. The hope of the hopeless resides in a quest. An overland warrior, a son of the sun, may bring us back light, he may bring us back none. But gather your neighbors and follow his call, or rats will most surely devour us all. Two over, two under, of royal descent. Two flyers, two crawlers, two spinners ascent. One gnar beside and one lost up ahead. And eight will be left when we count up the dead. The last who will die must decide where he stands. The fate of the eight is contained in his hands. So bid him take care, bid him look where he leaps. As life may be death, and death life again reaps. Bars. Absolute fire. Sandwich may be mad and evil, but he can write a sick-ass poem. So Gregor asks what that all means, and Vicus says it describes several creatures going on a journey led by an overlander called the Warrior, and this is why the rats hate overlanders. Gregor asks, so when's he coming? And Vicus says, I believe he is already here. <laughs> It's a great ending to the chapter. Very good. Does it uh, specify the gender of the warrior? Ooh, that's a good question. Because that was one thing that I've always had a slight nitpick with in the Pussy Jackson series, is that they assume it might have been Talia, who's the child of the prophecy at first, but then in the actual prophecy, it um, specifies that it's a he. Oh, that's so interesting. And at least in, at least in their interpretation, because it turns out actually... Well, I guess that's spoilers for Percy Jackson, but the he, the, a single choice shall end his days doesn't actually apply to the half-blood of the eldest gods. You're so right, but actually. they don't know that. They assume that's also the half-blood of the eldest gods. 
So why would they think it would be Talia? I had never realized that before. That is so smart. So does it specify if it's a he or does it keep it gender neutral? So it calls him a son of the sun. Okay. So son, S-O-N, would be like a guy. Most typically. And then it uses he, the pronoun. So yeah, it does assume the gender. I had never thought to look at that. That's smart. Any other chapter 10 thoughts? Prophecy of Grey thoughts? It's like you said, it's very well written. I love how much Suzanne Collins plays around with, like, even just little things like the structure of the different poems. Like, we, there's the nursery rhyme, which is obviously very different. But yeah. then even just, like, the length of it. Like, this is a very, a fairly straightforward, um, like, it's just a bunch of couplets. I like how it gets, I, I guess also Bartholomew Sandwich really uh, switches it up. <laughs> Yeah, depending yeah. on I guess how how the how the prophecies are flowing through him. Yeah, that's so interesting. He's such a poet as well as a prophet. Prophets prophecies are often in in poetry form. Another Nostradamus connection, I guess. That's right. That's right. So chapter eleven starts with Gregor waking up from a nightmare. He recalls how the rest of his conversation with Vicus went after he implied that Gregor is the warrior in the prophecy. Gregor denied being the warrior, reasoning that warriors in books and movies are usually grown-ups with special weaponry. And, quote, unless you counted a two-year-old sister as special weaponry, he'd come empty-handed. I'd count it. Yeah, it's funny because she does end up being special weaponry later. That's why I asked about the gen- if, they were, if it was gendered, because, like, again, I think it would be very obvious for them to have assumed that Gregor's father was... The warrior. I also think, given everything Boots does, it wouldn't have been far off if she was also applied. That's so interesting. Like, she's the one who, like, becomes queen of the crawlers. She's she's yeah. a huge player in this entire game of prophecies. Yeah, very true. Yeah, this prophecy doesn't mention the princess, but I think mm-hmm. the next one does, yeah. um, which is what the crawlers come to call Boots. Then we get some inner monologue about how Gregor doesn't like fighting. The narration says, he'd fight back if someone jumped him at school, but that didn't happen often. And I'm wondering, does that mean it happens sometimes? Like, does Gregor get jumped at school? I honestly, sadly, given what he's talked about, like his like social standing and like how he doesn't have many friends, I think it's possible. That sucks. Yeah. He also says... He'd step in if a bunch of guys were pounding a small kid. He hated seeing that. So I love that he's noble. He's not a bystander. Big brother energy, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Vicus reasoned that Gregor must be the warrior based on some statistics. Mm -hmm. He says maybe a tenth of the overlanders who enter the Underland survive the fall, and another tenth survive the rats. It's especially rare that three people from the same family made it to Regalia. There is zero chance Vikas has those actual statistics. He is totally just throwing out numbers. He's just pulling that out of his there's ass. No, like, there's no way they keep a log of all the humans. They don't, they don't even know all that. I bet there's so many undocumented humans, overlanders, who fall into Vigalia that they just have no idea of because they, they fall into the wetlands, they fall into the rat areas, and they never know that the rats kill them. Like, they, they don't know. He's just saying this to back up his beliefs. Yeah, Vikas is just making shit up. 
So Gregor thinks that this isn't good enough evidence. He reasons that his family all share the same laundry room, which has the entrance to the Underland that's close to Regalia. So it's probably a coincidence. I think this is very logical of him to think. Extremely. Although I will, like, I don't know. That's just, that's never, this is not a nitpick necessarily. It's just an observation. Is the, the hole to the Underland from the laundry room is not that, like, sequestered off. I feel like there would be even more people who fall. I know, Again, right? it's just the updrafts that Vicus gave the explanation for, for why he and his father survived it all. Like, it's... Right. More people have definitely fallen down this laundry chute. You would think that more people would find the laundry chute and go down it, and even if they didn't survive to go to Regalia, if they just, like, died... They'd still be missing, and people would go looking for them, right? You think the the building would be shut down for being a safety violation, right? Hazardous living location. Yeah, I think realistically, <laughs> this entrance to the Underland would have been found by now, but we can suspend disbelief. Absolutely, for the books. it's just a funny observation because they have the other entry that's in like Central Park. Yeah. That's like, Central Park's big. It's not exactly like yeah, and it's like under a rock. Under or a rock. Something. That 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 one I can buy. But people do laundry every day. Even with Vicus's uncertain reasoning, Gregor agrees to appear before the council this morning to address it. He's happy that his dad is alive, but anxious that he's imprisoned by rats. He recalls a saying his grandma uses, where there's life, there's hope. And this kind of ends up being a recurring theme in the books. This quote comes back a few times, I think. Two things. I love how he's still an optimist through everything he's been through. He's still holding out hope. But also I love he's just humoring Vicus at this point. He doesn't actually think this prophecy applies to him. But he's right. like, he understands this is a way for him to get to his dad. Exactly. His main goal has shifted from trying to get himself in Boots' home to rescuing his dad. And he understands that this is the way to do that. Right. So Merith wakes him up and says he can wash up and eat breakfast before going to the council meeting. Gregor notes that the swelling in my darling Merith's face has gone down, but he'll still have bruises for a while. He wonders if Merith's still mad at him, but Merith's voice is calm. Gregor leaves Boots in bed when Merith says Dulcet will look after her, and he gets dressed and asks Merith how Perdita and the bats are. Merith says they're all going to mend, and Gregor is relieved, because even with everything going on with his dad, he hasn't stopped thinking about how the wounded Underlanders are. Gregor goes to appear before the council, which is a group of a dozen older Underlanders. Vicus and Solovet are two of them. Luxa is also there, and Gregor thinks she must have just been chewed out for joining the rescue party last night, but he's sure she hadn't acted one bit sorry. The council members start asking Gregor questions about himself, and we learn that his favorite color is green, just like Katniss. Then the council members start to argue with each other about the prophecy. Gregor cuts in and again denies that he is the warrior, but pleads with them to help him rescue his dad. This just sets them off again, <laughs> because they think that this is him asking them to, quote, follow his call, just like in the prophecy. Vicus calls for a vote, and ten out of the twelve agree he's the warrior. Gregor notices that Luxa doesn't raise her hand to vote, either because she doesn't think he's the warrior or because she isn't allowed to vote, then decides it's probably both. <laughs> Who's the other member of the council who doesn't agree that he's the warrior? Do they ever reveal that? I it's don't just think one so. I think it's two unnamed Underlanders, because Luxa isn't actually part of the right. council. I think I she's wonder. just there. 
Gregor says he'll get boots and they can start the quest right away. This sets the council off again because they don't know if boots should come along. The prophecy mentions 12 creatures, but only describes two of them as overlanders, and that could just mean Gregor and his dad. Vicus points out that four will be dead by the end of the quest and it would be safer to leave boots in regalia. Gregor doesn't like that idea though, because he knows that if he and his dad don't come back, Boots will never get home, which is really sad and terrifying that he's thinking about that. But it's also realistic, and he's thinking ahead. Yeah. Smart, but terrifying. Although I will say, but if he and his dad don't come back and Boots is with them, that probably would mean she doesn't come back either. That's true. That's true. (laughs) He is thinking ahead, though. Yeah. Trying to cover all his bases. Now I'm imagining an alternate universe where Gregor dies and Boots has to grow up as the lone overlander orphan in Regalia. I'd love to read that alternate universe. So Gregor remembers that his mom always tells them to stay together when he takes his sisters out, and he ends up asking Luxa what she would do if it were her sister. The room goes quiet, and Gregor can tell the council doesn't want to hear her opinion. At first, she says... I have no sister, Overlander, and the council seems to like that. But that just makes her scowl and say, But if I did, and I were you, I would never take my eyes off her. Gregor tells her thank you, but the council is in such an uproar that he doesn't know if she hears him. He raises his voice and lets them know that if Boots can't go, he won't go either. Suddenly, a bat with a broken wing veers into the room and crashes onto the table. There's a woman on the back of the bat, and she's bleeding from a wound in her chest. She tells them that the rats found Shed and Fanger in the river, and King Gorger has launched his armies. Vicus asks, how many, Kida? And she says, many. Many rats. And then goes limp. So war is on, Mm -hmm. the armies have been launched, King Gorger has been introduced. We're really getting into it now. It's about to happen. It's about to go down. I really love these pair of chapters just because we get to spend some time with the prophecy and with Gregor's thoughts on that, and we get to see him think through and process the fact that yeah, I'm probably not the warrior, but I do need to like pretend that I am so that they'll help me find my dad. We get the first steps in like the development of Gregor and Luke's relationship also. Yeah, which I really like. you're right. Before it's been very one-dimensional. And with this part, we get first the connection they have of like having a parent either missing or presumed dead or dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get this last exchange during the council where he looks to her for support and gets it. I, I just like how it's it feels organic. They're like like they they're still kids and they don't really like each other, but there's a little there's just enough for them to have in common where they start to share some understanding yeah. of each other. This is the first time that Gregor looks to Luxa for her advice and it's kind of the first time they're on the same side of an argument which is really fun. Well, that is it for chapters 10 and 11. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me, as always. It's always fun to talk about the prophecies together. Next week, we'll be covering chapters 12 and 13. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel to get an update when it goes up. You can follow us on Tumblr, Instagram, and Twitter at Return to Regalia, all one word. And until next time, fly you high. (laughs) 